0: To the responsibility to protect.
1: Atrocity prevention.
0: Worth. Kill.
1: All societies are potentially vulnerable. Atrocity
0: crimes timely and appropriate actions.
1: Welcome to Expert Voices on Atrocity Prevention by the Global Centre for the Responsibility to Protect. I'm Jacqueline Streifeld-Hall, Research Director at the Global Centre. This podcast features one-on-one conversations with practitioners from the fields of human rights, conflict prevention, and atrocity prevention. These conversations will give us a glimpse of the personal and professional side of how practitioners approach human rights protection and atrocity prevention, allowing us to explore challenges, identify best practices, and share lessons learned on how we can protect populations more effectively. Today's episode is the first in a two-part series on the Russian invasion of Ukraine and international law. For this first episode, I will speak with Professor Alexander Hinton, who is a distinguished professor of anthropology, the director of the study for the Center of Genocide, and the UNESCO Chair in Genocide Prevention at Rutgers University. Thank you for joining us today, Professor Hinton.
0: Yeah, and thanks again for inviting me to do this.
1: Just to give our listeners a little bit of background before we dive into the conversation, could you define what the crime of genocide is under international law?
0: Yeah, that's a uh, that's an important question uh, and a great question. Uh, and maybe to sort of get there, there's a bit of a path uh, we have to take. Um, you know, I think it's important to distinguish between different ways that people understand the term. And there's what we might call a humanistic or folk conception of genocide. Uh, And that's the idea that genocide uh, refers to the destruction of a group of people. And often uh, people will think of the Holocaust, Auschwitz. uh, And so that informs a lot of uh, common sense understandings of genocides. When the term's used, many people think of that. The term itself has, uh, of course, a longer history. Uh, and the person who coined it, uh, his name was Raphael Lemkin, uh, and he was a Polish Jewish jurist uh, who eventually came to the United States. Uh, and he coined the term in 1944, and he defined it as the destruction of a nation um, or an ethnic group. He had an interesting way of thinking about it, and it, you know, in some sense, bears back upon the situation. Uh, and uh, with the Russian invasion of Ukraine, uh, maybe we can look back to that later, uh, but he referred to it as a coordinated plan of different actions aimed at the destruction of the essential foundations of the life of national groups. And so, again, it wasn't in contrast to the, uh, you know, folk humanistic common sense understanding of genocide. Uh, he was talking about physical killing, but also even the destruction uh, of a group's political system, its religious system, its moral system, its economic system, uh, and its cultural system uh, as well. And he saw this as a two-pronged, it sort of took place uh, in terms of two phases. One was uh, the destruction of the national pattern of whatever group was being targeted. Uh, And in his book, Access Rule and Occupied, Europe about the the Nazi atrocities he actually went through and showed how the Nazis were doing this in different uh, countries uh, so the first was the destruction of the the national pattern of a group and then the imposition of uh, whatever the aggressor their uh, their national pattern uh, and so the, he coined this in nineteen forty four uh, then uh, you know it sort of made its way a little bit to Nuremberg. Uh, and then he, Lemkin, as well as other people, uh, advocated at the UN for the criminalization uh, of genocide. So we have what we might say this humanistic folk conception of genocide. And then we have Limkin's vision of genocide, which is still expansive, and we might think of it as more of a social scientific understanding of genocide and one that many scholars uh, informs their work, um, but legally, to go back to your question, so this is the third sense. Um, you know, eventually through a lot of political brokering, debate, argument, uh, you know, and almost miraculously, uh, we had uh, passage of the UN Genocide Convention in 1948. It began actually with a more expansive definition, uh, no doubt because Limpkin was probably involved. In the writing of it that included, for example, political groups and cultural genocide. Uh, But through debate at the UN, and there was lots of politics involved, uh, the definition eventually was restricted to four protected uh, groups. So, in terms legally, there's a mental element involved, and there's also a physical element. So the mental element that came out uh, was, uh, you know, in the in the convention, genocide referred to acts committed with the, and this is the key part, the intent to destroy, and the intent to destroy is important because you have to then legally, and again, in contrast to other ways of looking at genocide, but within the legal sense, uh, you're supposed to, you have to prove intent. The question then becomes, well, what is intent? How do you prove it? That's a larger question. That's the intent to destroy. And again, in contrast to that folk conception where it's the complete annihilation of a group in the genocide convention, it's actually the intent to destroy in whole or in part. And then there are four protected groups, uh, national groups, ethnic groups, racial groups, and religious groups. So for example, uh, distinctions made in other way, other group identities are taken out, including, importantly, uh, political identifications. So that's the mental element, that intent to destroy the four protected groups. And then the physical element, and it's, you know, if you, when I read through this, you'll see it's it almost as odd, the things that are put together. And part of that is that this was the endpoint uh, of debate and deliberation. Uh, but, you know, so the first part of it the first physical element involves killing, you know, the, going back to the folk conception, uh, the physical killing of uh, members of a group. And then related to that, it also includes causing serious bodily or mental harm to members of a group. And then the third component, are three of five, uh, is uh, putting a group. Uh, in situations that are calculated to bring about its physical destruction, whole or in part. And you can actually think of, you know, blockading, uh, speaking to the present moment, blockading a city. If you have the intent, you've got to prove the mental element uh, to destroy a population. Um, the fourth uh, is uh, imposing different measures to prevent births within a group, and this has been used, for example, in Rwanda and other cases uh, to uh, charge people uh, when rape is used as a weapon of genocide uh, and conflicts. And then the fifth one, uh, which is in some sense perhaps a relic of cultural genocide, which was taken out as transferring children uh, from one group to another group, and uh, maybe uh, they had in mind partly the Armenian genocide uh, when a lot of children were taken away uh, and transferred uh, and transferred over so those you know that's the mental element that's and along with the acts the physical component, and then they're actually uh the i should say that the criminalization of genocide so it was made a crime in international law but it was both to prevent and to punish. So it sort of had this dual uh, aspect to it that uh, too often in terms of prevention, it's fallen short. There's been much more effort in terms of punishment. Um, But it's not just committing genocide that's punishable. Uh, There's also uh, conspiring to commit genocide. Incitement, the incitement of genocide, uh, attempts to commit it, and complicity. So, you know th- there are other clauses as well, uh, different articles within the convention. These are the three big ones. Um, but that's the legal sense, and I just want to sort of circle back and note that it overlaps with, but is also different from that humanistic folk sense, uh, and also diverges in important way, important ways from the social scientific sense that many scholars. Uh, including me, uh, often tend the way we tend to think about uh, genocide, even as we recognize the importance of the legal sense in the Genocide Convention. And so in public discourse, right, the word is used in all of these different ways, and this has a number of entailments, including the misuse of the term um, and the political manipulation of the term uh, and a lack of understanding of when the term applies and doesn't apply.
1: I think you make a, an excellent point here regarding well, the misuse of the term and, and correct use of the term and the fact that there is sort of a nuanced understanding of genocide. There's the legal, there's the folk, and then there's, you know, how people think of it themselves, um, regardless of legal definition. So I think with that in mind, jumping to the current context, as many people know, prior to the invasion of Ukraine... Uh, Vladimir Putin listed out several reasons justifying the invasion, and one of them was to stop genocide in eastern Ukraine. So I'm curious, how do you feel about that reasoning? And was there ever any evidence of genocide in eastern Ukraine?
0: Yeah, so, you know, this is a clear example of the political misuse of the term genocide. Um, And there are different ways in which the term is politically misused we could talk about that later perhaps Um, but in this case it's being used as a justification for uh, mass violence Uh, so you know the term genocide in terms of uh, the soviet union uh, moving into uh, the russian federation and the present uh, the term has long circulated Uh, you know for example In the 1950s, after the uh, UN Genocide Convention was passed, uh, a number of Baltic states, uh, diaspora communities mobilized to say that uh, the USSR was committing genocide there. So that's, you know, the term has circulated, and this has continued through time with accusations by different uh, groups, both former members of the Soviet Union, uh, who now are independent states, but also within Uh, Russia itself. And the vision, you know, to understand the claims that Russia is making, it's important to sort of look at the history of when the Soviet Union uh, fell apart and fractured and splintered, and uh, many people, including uh, Putin, were very uh, upset by that. And there's almost a yearning to reclaim that imperial expansive vision of what uh, the Russian Federation is, uh, and this has come out very clearly uh, in different speeches, for example, uh, that uh, Putin has given. Um, but the claim, in some sense, is there's this there's a role of Russia to protect those who are Russian-identified, and I say that those who are regarded as ethnic Russian or uh, Russian speakers uh, and other nearby adjoining areas and so that actually uh, implicates the baltic states which have large numbers of russian speakers ethnic russians uh, but it also implicates uh, ukraine so you know the backdrop to this and you know so the word genocide has circulated a long time even before 2014 Um, when we had the Maiden Revolution uh, in Ukraine. And from the perspective of Russia, the way they frame it is they say it was a coup, an illegitimate coup, and they try and tag, uh, dehumanize, uh, and demean the Ukrainian government by saying that it was led by neo-Nazis. There were uh, some neo-Nazis, some far-right extremists, uh, who were actually active, a small number, in Ukraine uh, during that revolution. Uh, and there was a party, but they actually no longer have any uh, very minimal power. Uh, but what they've done is they've taken that small grain of truth and they've used it to, they've amplified it to characterize uh, the Ukrainian government as uh, you know a neo-Nazi regime, which of course suggests, what do Nazis do? Well, they commit genocide. Uh, and so dating back to 2014, uh, when we had the revolution already in 2015, uh, Putin said something along, along the lines of what's happening in in uh, Donbass, uh, smells of genocide. Uh, so this term was, has been used, it circulated, it was actually used when Russia invaded Georgia uh, in 2008. Um, but it all links into this sort of expansive notion that Russia needs to protect uh, its people uh, wherever they are, even across national borders. Um, So what we heard uh, expressed, you know, very dramatically uh, by Putin uh, when he gave his speech announcing what he termed a, quote unquote, special operation, of course, they've banned in Russia now uh, the ability of people to use words like invasion, Uh, they've criminalized it. Um, so, "quote unquote," uh, it was obviously and clearly an invasion. Uh, one of the reasons, one of the main justifications, was that. Uh, uh, so, to back up, so in 2014, uh, Russia came in and took Crimea, and they also supported. Uh, many people say they sent troops uh, into uh, the into the Donbas region, which is now split up uh, into two and uh, to two territories, which now they've recognized as being uh, states. Uh, and there was an ongoing uh, conflict there that took place over many years. Uh, we don't know how many people died between 2014 and to the present. There are monitors there uh, from the OSCE, uh, the Office of High Commissioner for Human Rights. Um, and, you know, it's, it's really tragic. There's been lots of violence, uh, lots of suffering uh, on both sides. Uh, as usual, civilians are the ones caught up uh, in uh, protracted military conflicts. Maybe thirteen to fourteen thousand people uh, have been killed, including civilians. Uh, enormous number of people, uh, numbers range up to one and a half million people, were uh, have been displaced. Uh, there have been all sorts of uh, atrocities again on both sides that have taken place, torture, uh, different uh, human rights violations, restrictions of rights, and the COVID crisis also uh, amplified this. So what Russia did, so this has gone on and again, there are monitors there, and that's very important to keep in mind because they're and you know including human rights Watch, uh, Amnesty, and many people report have reported on the on the awful violence that's taken place. but Russia circling back makes the claim. That the Ukrainian government uh, is targeting ethnic Russians and Russian speakers, uh, both by indiscriminately shelling them, right? Shelling uh, residential areas. And, you know, isn't that ironic right now, given what they're doing uh, throughout uh, Ukraine? Um, They claim to have found uh, mass graves, and they have some pictures they've shown. They claim that. Russian ethnicity is being uh, erased through, for example, restrictions on the use of language uh, and cultural practices um, but what's what's happened is you know where where's the evidence? You know, there is no evidence. so what they do again, uh, as they've done in the past, is they take little pieces of truth and they amplify it into a big lie um, and so, sure, you know people have absolutely been killed, but again. We have monitors, they've been observing, and nobody has found anything remotely resembling uh, genocide taking place. It's it's an absurd claim, uh, and the only reason that claim is made uh, is as a justification uh, for violence, for an invasion, and one that already has resulted in exactly the same thing that they were talking about. So they claim to be acting in the name of averting a humanitarian crisis and atrocity crimes, Now, they've gone in, and they've created a humanitarian crisis, and they've committed atrocity crimes. Um, So, again, it's a complete distortion and misuse of the term, Um, but again, it's a potent word to use and invoke because of all of the historical resonances uh, that it has.
1: I'm glad you said it in that way, because I think one thing that has come up for for people who maybe don't know international law that well is even if this justification had been correct and amidst, as you noted, you know, evidence of other crimes, not genocide, but certainly other violations of international law. Under international law and the UN Charter, can genocide be used as a basis for invading another country?
0: Right. So, you know, like all legal documents, uh, there are subclauses and bits and pieces that can suggest that. So if the UN Genocide uh, Convention says that states have an obligation to prevent genocide, uh, it can selectively be used to justify an action. So again, you know, law, uh, there of course is a larger corpus and body of law that amplifies and expands and specifies what is meant by a term. But if you just take a word that appears in the convention, you can you know, use it as a legitimation. But again, it's a, it's a misuse of the term. Um, a sort of side, not really side, it's a fairly major thing that's taken place, um, is that the uh, Ukrainian government has actually filed a suit at the International Court of Justice saying that Russia... Misuse the UN Genocide Convention and falsely claim that uh, genocide was taking place, and they've actually begun. They've, uh, you know, fast tracked the case, um, but so this is being litigated exactly this point uh, right now, um, and Russia. Uh, has not really said much in its defense uh, again sort of going back to this earlier point where's the evidence? they uh, circulated a document that really wasn't distributed to the broader public uh, at the Security Council. Um, they have filed some complaints uh, about atrocities committed by the Ukrainian government in Donbass uh, before. Um, they you know so if you try and find out where exactly the evidence is well you can go to RT. Uh, and there's a documentary uh, that sort of uh, you know promotes the the line of Russia, but there ultimately is no evidence. So there's no doubt that uh, in this suit, uh, the court's going to find that there was no basis uh, for the Russian claim of genocide, and that it was a false claim that was used to legitimate uh, the invasion, uh, and now atrocity crimes being committed there.
1: So as you've made clear, and as I think. Most of us um, feel looking at the evidence or, or lack thereof, the term genocide has been kind of blatantly misused in this situation. And as you noted, it it has been a term that's been used throughout history um, in the USSR and, and Russia. But this is a common occurrence beyond Eastern Europe and other parts of the world, right?
0: Yeah, no, that's uh, an important point. Uh, and, uh, you know, it needs to be underscored. Um, You know, this isn't just a selective, it's a absolutely vital, important uh, criticism, critique, uh, and point to underscore about Russia's invasion. Uh, And I actually wrote a a piece about this uh, in uh, the conversation, and it took up some of these uh, themes uh, about the misuses of the term. But I want to say even, you know, so there's the critique now being made of Russia, but this critique can be made through since uh, sort of going back in history since the term was coined and then taken up at the UN, I mentioned the different debates were going on. So why were political groups removed and why why did cultural genocide, for example, drop out? Well, in terms of political groups, uh, the Soviet Union had committed uh, mass atrocities uh, against political groups, and they certainly didn't want it, uh, that to be in the convention. And there were actually uh, some countries in South America as well that didn't want it there. And if you turn to cultural genocide uh, and you look at the history of colonialism and imperialism, certainly those things being talked about as cultural genocide uh, are very much bound up with uh, colonialism and imperialism. So again, colonial powers didn't want that included. Um, You know, there were complex debates and I'm sort of, you know, with nuances, but that's sort of the gist of it. Uh, And this, you know, took place in general. So why, if we go back to the mental element with intent, and now people legally talk about having special intent. So what is special intent? It creates this extremely high threshold to get a conviction um, for genocide. So how do you prove intent? You know, so can you find a smoking gun, as it's sometimes called? Um, You know, it's really hard to find that. Um, you know, can you find an exact document where an order is given to uh, exterminate another group? That's very difficult to find. And we can think back cases like Darfur, uh, where they said, well, we can't say genocide's taking place because we can't sort of find uh, the smoking gun, uh, so to speak. So it has to be, intent has to be inferred. But why it's important in terms of the political misuse is the U.S., for example, pushed for a high threshold of intent because they were worried that they would, especially uh, Dixiecrats, Southern Democrats uh, in the U.S., that they would be charged with genocide uh, for the uh, mass violence uh, committed against uh, the country's Black population, uh, you know, sort of most uh, dramatically uh, lynching and police uh, abuses, but also uh, well, as a little aside, we just had the 70th anniversary of a petition that was brought forth by uh, communist-oriented uh, Black activists. Not all of them were communists, but many of them were, including Paul Robeson. Um, they petitioned the UN to say the U.S. has committed genocide. This is in uh, 19, 1951. Um, and it went through and actually used the different all of the different articles uh, to make this claim. But they also... Going back to the physical elements and the third clause um, about deliberately inflicting uh, conditions on a, on a group that will bring about its destruction, destruction. they talked about what we're now talking about is structural racism and talked about the much higher uh, death rate uh, of Blacks in the U.S. Uh, and so going back in time just a little bit, during the deliberations for the, uh, for the convention, the U.S. is very aware of that, and they did everything they could to make ensure that there was a convention that would make it very difficult to uh, charge the U.S. with genocide. So the political misuses are directly bound up with the creation of the very document that we have, uh, the very convention that we have, which is a political one. And certainly it's much better to have this one than to not have it, but it's also important to see the different sorts of erasures that are involved uh, and the very limited number of groups that are protected. It's great to protect them, but it would be nice if there were it was a much more expansive uh, number of groups uh, that were listed. Um, so that's an example of what we might call masking, right? obfuscating uh, and even denying. Uh, abuses in the past. But, you know, so that was back then. It continues into the present. Uh, we can just turn, for example, to the Uyghur in China and sees, despite overwhelming evidence, uh, the Chinese government repeatedly denying that uh, genocide has taken place and denying the atrocities. It also, so the term is used to obfuscate. Uh, sometimes it's used to legitimate inaction and to pivot back to the U.S., uh, there's the very famous, uh, notorious uh, sort of memory of when U.S. officials were asked, "Is the violence is taking place in Rwanda?" Now, you know, this is in 1994. Is it genocide? And uh, you know, there's a famous interview with U.S. Uh, official who's saying, "Well, we're not sure. We can call it that. It's a very specific term." So again, you can also legitimate inaction, which is another. Misuse of the term, but the one circling back uh, to what Russia's is doing uh, is one uh, where you use the term to uh, legitimate uh, and justify uh, what it, mass violence, and perhaps it's the most paradoxical of all of the th- different misuses.
1: That's really fascinating. I can remember in. I think it was 2005, I was teaching Intro to International Relations. And we used that clip of the State Department official sort of struggling to describe what was happening in Rwanda um, without using the word genocide and kind of hand-wringing. And the students were all shocked and horrified. And what is this? How could our government be like this? And then, you know, at the same time, these same exact debates were happening with regard to Darfur.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, there's a long history of this. And that's why, you know, going back to the beginning, I thought it was important to lay out the different ways that the term is used, because sometimes these different understandings uh, inflect differently in these debates. So, for example, students will often be invoking, uh, and again, it depends on the class, uh, but they'll be invoking the folk conception, does it look like? the Holocaust. Does it look like Auschwitz? Uh, other people will be using a legalistic sense. And then maybe people like me will often be invoking uh, a more social scientific sense. And maybe I'll just add one little caveat about the social scientific sense uh, and why even as, you know, I recognize and I can, uh, you know, I testified at the uh, Khmer Rouge Tribunal in Cambodia on the charge of genocide. And I was operating within the legalistic framework. So, you know, I, I recognize its value. But you know, the social scientific sense that is inspired to some, <clears throat> in many ways, by Lemkin. And I just want to add a little small note, though, that we shouldn't overly valorize Lemkin, because, for example, when the We Charge Genocide Petition was brought forth uh, in 1951, he immediately critiqued it, in part because he was trying to you know, get the UN Convention ratified uh, in the US, and also he was bound up and involved with the Baltic states, uh, you know, sort of promoting their claims of, uh, that the Soviet Union was committing genocide. But having said that, the definition that Lipkin has is more capacious, and it also can turn us... Well, the UN Genocide Convention is structured in a way that it recognizes and sort of focuses on state-directed violence that's very direct with a sort of prototype being. The holocaust but of course there's a long history of settler colonial genocide for example that doesn't neatly fit within that Uh, and so the social scientific conception is more capacious um, and of course many lawyers don't like that because they want to stick to the uh un genocide convention even though i would argue that the convention itself is somewhat capacious um But again, it's always really important to distinguish between these different ways of knowing and understanding the term so that we don't have, and also the ways of misusing the term uh, so that uh, we have clarity. uh, And especially at times like the present one, where Russia's uh, justifying its invasion of Ukraine using the language of genocide and the accusation of genocide, it's absolutely critical to be clear.
1: Thank you for listening to this episode of Expert Voices on Atrocity Prevention. Please tune into our next part of the series, where I will sit down with Rebecca Barber, a research fellow with the Asia Pacific Center for the Responsibility to Protect, and a PhD scholar with the T.C. Barron School of Law at the University of Queensland. We'll be discussing the international response to the current situation in Ukraine, and what options are still available to the international community. If you'd like more information about the Global Center's work on R2P, mass atrocity prevention, or populations at risk of mass atrocities, visit our website at globalr2p.org and connect with us on Twitter and Facebook at GCR2P.